The following is a production of PMA Magazine. It's been said so many times, it's become cliche. That music is a universal language. It's one of the only things that unites people across cultural, physical, and socio-political dividing lines. And even so, a lot of bands seem to shy away from addressing issues with their music for fear of alienating fans who may disagree with their beliefs, especially early in their careers. Bruce Springsteen can afford to lose a few people by taking a stand on something potentially polarizing, but for a young band in today's hyper-competitive Wild West of a music industry, singing about stuff that matters represents an added risk to their financial success. Or does it? As you're about to find out, Nashville's Friendship Commanders is finding an audience by making music that matters. You won't find any party anthems in the impressive catalog of music they've released in the eight years they've been together. Instead, they choose to tackle issues like sexism, abuse, alienation, gaslighting, objectification, racism, police brutality, just to name a few. But what's unique about Friendship Commander's approach is that their brand of ideological confrontation is inclusive. I caught up with chief songwriter, guitarist, and vocalist Buick Audra and drummer Jerry Rowe to learn more about their journey as artists and what it's like to stand for something meaningful in today's crowded musical landscape. So please enjoy my conversation with Nashville's own Friendship Commanders, right here on the PMA Podcast. Hello. Hello. So glad to be here. Thank you for trusting us to tell your story. So. I was reading all your lyrics this weekend and was excited to see PMA called out in two of your songs. Uh, <laughs> that was pretty wild since I had reached out to you before even knowing that. Really? Oh, yeah. I'll, I'll do you one better. For the first year and a half that we toured, or maybe two years in this band, I wore a suit that, had, that I had stitched PMA on the lapel of, so I had it on at every show. <laughs> so how are things down in Nashville right now? Um... Mixed bag. Yeah, weird. You know, I, I don't know if we're still the the virus epicenter of the United States, but we were for a long time. I think we probably I think we are. are. Yeah. Um, yeah, per capita, not highest number. But yeah, you know, smack dab in the middle of a red state. We're supposedly a blue dot. I don't really know that we are. Yeah. But we're here. We're live. So your music seems to aim for inclusivity, which makes me want to learn more about how you were turned on to empathy as a core part of your persona uh, at an early age. So was there an experience or someone in your life growing up that taught you about the importance of understanding other people's experiences, walking in their shoes before making judgments, anything like that? My name is Buick. I'll speak to that first. Um, I've been an activist for all of my adult life. And the original cause that got me involved in activism was the AIDS and mm -hmm. HIV crisis. And I did have the great fortune of knowing some people who were HIV positive when I was very young. And I'm so grateful to have had such close proximity to their stories because I feel like it it helped me to dismantle stigma in my own home. And it helped me to learn about the, the real life experience of someone who was going through being shamed. And at the time there was a huge amount of stigma around HIV and all of the ways that a human being might contract it. And so I think that that was the beginning of my thinking around an issue like that. And I've had the opportunity to apply that to many, many areas of my life since. But I think that that was the beginning for me. I, I think I've learned a lot since being in this band from Buick, who is the main creative force. She writes all of the songs and the lyrics and sort of conceptualized the whole thing, I think, from the beginning. He's but a big part. 
but I was I was uh, weirdly born into Buddhism here in Nashville, Tennessee, uh, to a somewhat atheist, agnostic father and a, a heavily practicing mother who was Buddhist. Uh, I left pretty early on because it was it was a weird religionized Western version of Buddhism that didn't quite work for me. But I was lucky to get into this world living with without judgment. I had no like dogma or anything like that. It was just like, you know, be as good as you can. And I guess that stuck with me to this day. Okay, so music can come from a lot of places, right? Um, There are autobiographical songs. There's escapist party music songs that aim to enlighten the listener. And a lot of meaning in music is sometimes left up to the listener's interpretation. You you can't control how people are going to hear that. So there's definitely a school of songwriting that suggests it's best to leave headroom in the lyrics so that people can bring their own meaning to it and make it more personable. And that makes the song more relatable by a broader audience. Do you think about relatability when you're writing songs about issues that matter to you personally? And, and how other people are going to hear those lyrics? I think the most that I've ever thought about how anybody else would hear the lyrics of something I'd written was when I wrote Stone Child. But that was because I didn't want to injure anybody in the story. So I wanted to tell the story without re-injuring any of his family members or community members. But that, that said, outside of that no, I think it's important to tell the truth first. So my first draft is always to tell the brutal truth and then if edits need to be made. It's usually a taste thing that I'm editing from, but no, I write from like a place of like emotional emergency. I'm usually not writing from a place of trying to appeal or be universal. And it's interesting to me when people tell me why songs of ours connect with them because they're usually relating it to things in their lives that I could never have known about or, you know, topics that I could never have conceived. So when you say emotional emergency, can you can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Like, like, take us to the genesis of a song from the very beginning. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to injure you by taking you back to a a very difficult moment or something like that. But if you can just kind of give us a sense of what that process is like for you. So we released a song last year called The Enemy I Know, which was on our, an EP called Hold On to Yourself, which is an incredibly personal body of work for me. And The Enemy I Know really is like the the sort of lead song in that body of work, I think, sort of thematically. It's the central thesis. And um, when I wrote that song, I was on the other side of a communication with a family member who has treated me carelessly in my life since coming forward as an abuse survivor in my family. And the thoughts that I put forth in that song are not new. In fact, they're they're things that I have been saying aloud in private spaces or to myself for like my whole life. And I needed to put them somewhere and get them out of my body after that conversation. I needed the sentiments to live outside of my body so that they didn't make me sick. And so when I wrote The Enemy I Know, it's like a fever. I get like a like an emotional fever and I feel like a point of crisis where it's not anger and it's not despair, but it is like emergency where I feel like I have to process it through another channel immediately. And so I wrote The Enemy I Know in probably less than an hour. I just heard what I needed to hear and put it forth. And then I when I when that happens to me, I don't know if it's a song. I just know that the that the sentiment and the music live somewhere else. So I usually play it for Jerry for validation that something is a song. <laughs> 
Does that uh, does that make sense? Does that work? Yeah. I'll also say you add it's probably not any good before you play it. I usually say it's not any good. Yeah. Well, so Jerry, uh, I know that you're responsible for the feel of the song. If you're not connecting with the song itself, then it's going to really make your job so much harder. And I can tell just by listening to the music that you're totally connected with what's happening. So how do you empathize with these experiences that are so personal to Buick uh, and then and then transmute that through your instrument in a way that's so convincing and so authentic? Oh, well, uh, first of all, thank you. But also, you know, I, I, I didn't have a great childhood and I suffered abuse from my family and people I was around growing up. So I know what it's like and it's, you know, not to compare, there's, there's no comparison or like it's apples and oranges. We both had different lives, but I feel like it's definitely why I play the way I do. And I, I mean, I can honestly say I've never, re, I've never had any problems or had to force connecting with Buick songs in that way. So it's the first time I've ever actually thought about that being something that might not be possible. You asking that question. I, I mean, the band's even changed, you know, I feel like the band's changed style pretty drastically since we started and we both went with it the same way we both moved in a like-minded way towards what we are now i don't know it's it's interesting to think about i guess yeah there was no decision to even do that it just happened organically but um the song started to go that way and so the sound went that way so right now it's no mystery to anybody that there's just a lot of cynicism and bitterness in the hearts of the people who are out there pushing some of the more hateful agendas these days. Your music as far as like a receptive audience, you know, that audience is is probably going to be a little bit more difficult to reach. Are you trying to make the issues you sing about more understandable through the music or or how do you keep idealism which is a very powerful thing. And we've, you know, we, we saw idealism in the sixties and, and how that was just sort of like transmuted into drugs and escapism and just almost, I don't want to say it got wasted, but it just, it didn't really amount to as much as I think it could have. But then in like the eighties, there were bands that re like you two and other bands that just came out and they were idealistic and they presented this like alternate form of how things could be. And I just as a kid of the eighties, I just remember that really meaning a lot to me and, and informing my worldview. So, you know, how do you, how do you keep idealism from being perceived as overly optimistic and naive? And how do you think that um, your idealism would be, or could be received by people who are cynical um, and, and bitter about something in the world? So I'm going to use the word hope uh, because it's a word I believe in, and it's a word that Harvey Milk believed in. I, I think a lot of activists believe in that word. And I'm going to say that for me, I wouldn't feel entitled to make work that was inclusive or hopeful if I were not part of the movement, in fact. So if I were just being a mouthpiece about ideas and sort of commanding that people believe this or believe that or support this or support that without putting my body there and making myself available to the actual movement. I think that that would be dishonest. And I think that people would be right to say, like, I don't have to. And, and people can say this anyway. Of course, everything is optional, but it's a different thing for somebody to say, this is what I'm seeing out here. And I'm hoping that we can, like, get it together and, and reroute. And, and I do see a lot of that sort of social media makes things. So everybody has like a, like a platform to sort of show off whatever they're learning. 
And I think it's important to be responsible about that. I try not to say anything that I'm not doing myself. You know, I try not to talk about things that I'm not actually practicing so that I'm not a hypocrite and I'm not, uh, I'm not being a white person with a platform who's not doing the work. Is, is your hope that someday we can heal through the sharing of ideas through a more palatable or more like interesting, approachable medium or because like, I guess what I'm getting at is like, you know, if if we're just having these conversations with each other, you know, we can move each other along in little little bits and pieces. But like we're not creating, I think, the change that we would all like to see. I think we would all like to see a large shift in the areas that we see as totally problematic. Right. And so like how can do you, do you think that music can be a vehicle for ideas that you don't agree with and somehow, like, I don't know, through the subconscious or somehow just gives you access to these ideas that are confrontational to your current worldview? I'm trying to process the question. Yes. Yes, I do. Um, and there are there are practicing Republicans who listen to friendship commanders. Yeah. <laughs> and we know that because we toured through Ohio fairly often before the shutdown and we have uh, interacted with them many times. They wear Trump shirts to our shows. They come to our shows. They buy our, our music. They support us. I'm not sure what they're hearing, but, but, but what I'm saying is still what I'm saying. So I think it's a good sign that they're supporting a woman in music. They're, you know, I mean, I think there are good things. I think there are good news items built into this. And I will also say that when we released Stone Child, it wasn't that people disagreed with the story of Stone Child and then came to see what I was saying. They had never heard of him. They had never heard of the story. And we brought it to more people than had heard of it before. And we did hear interesting feedback that like, we were opening people's eyes to injustices, which seemed impossible to me. I couldn't understand that it was a brand new idea. It's the oldest injustice in this in this land, um, literally. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. I mean? It's the original body of injustice on North American soil, like what has happened with Native American peoples. But still, there were people who were our peers, who were white people in the rock scene, who had had never, for whatever reason, had to think about it before until they heard the song, which is amazing, but we'll take it. So I do think that music is a vehicle for some sort of communication. I do think it bridges a gap. I don't know how much of a dent our music is making, but it seems to be moving some pieces in some ways.
Okay, so you say you wrote The Enemy I Know in response to a conversation with a family member. You just said that. Um, when, mm-hmm. when you're writing from that a super personal space, and sounds like you do that almost all the time, you're taking a risk by putting so much of yourself out there and making it kind of public information and letting people in. What's the calculation of that risk look like in your head? You talked about it a little bit, but can you go into a little bit more depth about whether or not you worry about exposing too much of yourself in your art? Or you also talked about re-injuring and being very, very careful about not re-injuring others with the stories that you're telling in your songs. But what about you? Like, do you do you worry about the fact that having to sing these songs every night may not be catharsis? It might actually just be bringing stuff up over and over again. That's a great question. I experience quite a bit of suffering when the music comes out, like in the first 48 hours that the music is in the world, I really struggle. I don't at all struggle with performing the music. The performance is actually my favorite. I, I love to sing the songs live. I don't re-injure myself in that space, but the, the, the initial release is very difficult for me and I have to be super careful with myself and give myself a lot of grace and a lot of room. I try not to communicate with too many people. Sometimes I leave the house for like 10 hours and, and don't interact. And it's, it's, it's a little bit of a vulnerability hangover, but it's also to speak to your point about not re-injuring anybody in Stonechild, I mean, I didn't live through my childhood stories and my abuse stories alone either. So, I mean, I, I do run things past other other parties and I don't ever mention them in my work, but I do warn people that the work is coming out, you know, primarily my, my only sibling. But uh, it's very difficult. It's not a thing about like whether or not I wonder what people think about it or anything like that. It's just Telling the truth takes a toll, but it seems to take a single toll on me when I release it. It doesn't re-happen in coming months and, and years. There's been a lot of talk over the last four years and a little bit before that, I, I heard it coming up about how times like these difficult times, and I know that sounds trite, but just we, it's like, it's almost pointless to go into what I mean by that at this point. Like everybody's feeling it so viscerally and either you feel it one way or you feel it the other way. And um, I'll just say, it's just, it's been a really, really difficult time for, for me and my family and my friends. Um, And there are like, you know, everybody's talked about how those times are supposed to produce like this meaningful art. You know, we had like Reagan era punk rock and we had bands like the MC5. And, you know, you're actually one of the few bands that seem to be doing that um, and using what's going on in the world as a catalyst for, for your art. Why do you think more protest music hasn't come out of the last four years? I don't know. I'm not sure if people are are able to emotionally connect to what has happened. I see a lot of intellectual and academic connecting happening around it, but I think that music comes from that, but also an emotional center. And I haven't seen as much of that like you. I'm not sure, but I too, it's such an interesting expectation. I remember when Trump was elected and everyone was like, the next four years of music are going to be amazing. It's actually kind of a lot of pressure on the artists of the world, right? To to document and speak to what's happening when we're also just existing in the crisis. I don't know, but I I certainly have felt a response to it in my body. And, And partially too, I live in Tennessee and I can't say enough how rough that's been. I mean, Tennessee's state leadership is corrupt and disappointing and very white male and Christian. And, you know, if I lived in Brooklyn still or something, I might feel that just that enough 
detached from what this has been to not have made this work. But living in Tennessee has felt it's been acute to be here. I mean, truly. Yeah, I, I think a, a major contributor to where we are now and what got us here is also why there isn't a whole lot of the kind of music you're talking about happening, which is that the economy of the music industry has just been destroyed. Yep. And I don't mean that it doesn't make money because it makes a lot of money. There's just no money for people at the bottom. Getting started, getting a record out, getting a record made that gets anywhere is impossible and expensive. And, you know, there are like 30,000 albums coming out a day on Bandcamp that nobody cares about or will ever hear. So you can't just really like drop a tape and have it rise above the muck and get out there anymore. It's pretty weird. I don't really know how to approach it at this point. Uh, I don't know how kids would do it without trying to. It, it seems like any band that gets anywhere is, is valuing the industry side of things more than they should be to ever make any art that's meaningful at this mm-hmm. point. Okay, so this is interesting. So what you just brought up is a great segue into what I wanted to ask next. So if that, you know, we all know that what you said is absolutely true and that it's like kind of now it's not even about like the barrier of entry for making music has gone down and for producing records and for making a great sounding record. Like you can do that in your bedroom now. Um, Totally. And (laughs) people do like Jerry just said, like 30,000 times a day or whatever. Um, and so the equation has changed. Right. And so now what we, what we remember from like the Dixie chicks and what we even have seen recently kind of down in your neck of the woods with people like Stapleton and Sturgill Simpson, where artists like dare to take a stand on one side of an issue, end up alienating some of their audience. And I'm sure they just terrify their entire, like all the people, all the mouths they feed are just like freaking out. Like, why would you, why would you go out Chris Stapleton and say that like a week before this record was about to come out, you know, and I could just see all, I could hear all of the arguments from all the, the marketing people and all these people like I am busting my ass to release this record that doesn't really have anything that political on it. I mean, I I love the record, but it's like this comment that you're making is, this is not what was in the press kit, Chris. It's disconnected. (laughs) This is not what we told you to say. Right. And like, why would you even do that? And it's like, it's the same argument people make about like the Chick-fil-A guy, CEO. It's like you make chicken sandwiches. What's your point? (laughs) Like, why don't you just let people buy your chicken sandwiches and keep your bigotry on the side because that would be like the smart thing for a stupid person to do, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so like maybe the equation has changed and I'm just going to throw this out there and I would love to hear what you think about this, but maybe because let's traditional marketing is so expensive even today, even w- like with the internet standards, it's like how how do I get noticed on you know in iTunes or how do I get noticed on Spotify? How do I get on one of those playlists? It's just like it's ridiculous. Um, maybe you found, uh, or maybe you just happen to be you in this time frame where actually taking a risk by standing by an issue or by singing about something that's meaningful to you personally, but is like this strong statement is one of the better ways to market your music these days, because it's something tangible and acute and visceral that people can attach themselves to. And it also sets you apart from the other 29,999 artists that came out on Bandcamp today. What do you guys think of that? Right. Yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, 
I feel like I don't have the option to do it the other way. So it's like lucky if anybody listens, you know what I mean? Like I'm not like a marketable commodity in many ways. Uh, And that the band, even though we're, I think we are a good band and I think we're a good heavy band. It's weird. It's like when I think about making music that was designed to do something else, like if, if someone was like, here's the formula for the front row, like we're obviously not doing it, you know? <laughs> so, and I don't even know what that would look I, I guess I know what it would look like. I write songs for other people and with other people. So I have a little bit of, you know, I'm not like, I'm part of the machine too, but in a different way, but I can't sing it. You know what I mean? Like I have to sing, I have to sing the enemy I know and not to be macabre, but I'm going to say this. If I, if I don't live past this year, I want to have said that. I want to have said what I said in the enemy I know, and I want for a woman to have said it. And I want it to have been said at the top of her lungs.
say to an artist that's just starting out or a musician who wants to take their work from more of an escapist angle to, or very abstract to something that was more ideal based or more issue oriented? I think it's about looking at the things that we're personally afraid of telling the truth about. Like, I think that that's the work that, that ends up being the most sort of propulsive, like, um, connective work is the, the stuff that I don't want to tell you is the stuff I should tell you, I think. Do I have fear? Do I have shame? Do I have uncertainty? Am I, you know, and, and it's not just about me, but like, do I have uncertainty about what I'm looking at out here, outside of myself? Like, what can I say about that? I think that that's the place, at, at, at least speaking for me, that's the place. And I'm I'm really arriving at this in in recent years myself, you know, I mean, but just speaking to the most recent release, the Stone Child story like wouldn't leave me alone. Like I couldn't put it down and I finally just like gave into that and 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 put that work forth as an offering, you know, but it's because I'm uncomfortable, I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed and I'm angry that that happened. So dealing with that must have been part of your motivation to involve Cassie Fowler in the song and, and she's a member of the community that Stone Child's came from um yeah it made the song so so much more powerful than it already was um Thank you. it's like it's you know it's a really creepy like it I just, know. It just <laughs> it puts the i just thinking about it i get like the hairs in the back of my neck just raise up yeah. um and so can you talk about the process that you undertook to make sure that that community you were trying to support was represented in that and that it was represented authentically and, and fairly? Yeah, so the, I found out about Stone Child from a member of the Suquamish tribe um, who lives on the Port Madison Reservation. So when I first wrote the song, uh, months later, you know, a long time later, I took it to her first and asked her how she felt about even the idea of a song existing that had been written by a white person. Um, and she loved the idea, actually. Um, but I think that that's primarily because she trusted me. She already knew me and trusted me as an activist and a person that um, would do my best in this way. So, and I appreciate that trust from her. So she took the song to Stone Child's family uh, before it, it didn't, it wasn't demoed or anything. It was just the lyrics, but the lyrics I think hold the, the essence of the intention. And they signed off on it within hours um, and said that, you know, we had permission to put it forth. And so when that conversation between my friend and I happened, I said, well, who else should can we involve? Like, who wants to be involved? You do other members of the community want to be involved? And she mentioned Cassie right away. Cassie is one of her relatives. And she knew that Cassie um, would speak beautifully would represent the tribal community and the family. And so Cassie, because Cassie also knew Stone Child's family, she actually taught some of his children in school. Um, she collaborated with them on what should be put forth message-wise. Um, and so that's how it unfolded. And, and you know, when she got her lyrics together um, and brought them to us and she said, is it okay that I'm saying you know, rape the land and these sort of really strong statements. And I was like, you say whatever you want, you know, if this is your, we're not editing you. This is the platform for you to, to bring forth whatever needs to be said. And um, I can't imagine the song without her voice. I think it's essential to 
the presentation of the work and the message. Absolutely, 100%. enjoyed this opportunity to get to know friendship commanders a little better. This interview was conducted over a year ago, and you should head over to friendshipcommandersband.com right now to find out about the new music they're releasing and catch them out on the road later this year. The print version of this interview is in issue six of our magazine, which you can still purchase through our website at getthatpma.com. It includes a lot of great photos of the band and some other amazing features and columns, so go check that out. With the exception of our theme song that you're hearing right now, all music in this episode was created and provided by the band, and we're very grateful to them for that. This podcast was produced and created here at PMA headquarters, and if you like what you heard today, please consider posting a review on your podcast platform of choice. It can really help other people discover us, and we could really use that right now. The PMA podcast is copyright. PMA Publishing, LLC, 2022. My name is Matt Johnston. I was your host. And I really want to thank you for listening, and we'll hear you on the next episode of the PMA Podcast. Take care.